Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where adventurers and explorers tell their stories. Coming up. I was aware that I was being closely protected. I actually only found real friendship from the people I was sometimes left with. I mean, there was a few points in the desert. The police were a, a, a real pain, to be honest. They, they thought it was an utter nuisance to be escorting me um, through the desert. You know, they just kept signaling for me to put my bike in the back of the pickup. Why would you cycle when you, there's a perfectly good Toyota Hilux to drive you through? And, you know, I understand that. You're cycling through the desert and all the field guns point north. And um, you're then cycling through massive refu refugee camps with a lot of insurgency and uh, issues in the areas. You're pedaling past burnt out buses and vehicles. I can imagine it looked utterly ridiculous for them to be escorting, you know, a, a European cyclist on his own, saying it was important to get a world record. I'm John Horsfall. I'm an adventurer. And here each week, I will be talking to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders, and many more. I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on your own grand adventure. My next guest certainly has a few stories to tell. He is a British long-distance cyclist, broadcaster and author. He holds the record for cycling around the world, completing his 18,000-mile route in less than 79 days. On today's podcast, we talk about his trips around the world, the stories from his adventures and what motivates him to keep pushing the limits. I am delighted to introduce Mark Beaumont to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Well, I mean, it's so great to have you on. The sort of I've been following your journeys pretty much since the very start of the first round the world and talk about some of these adventures that you've had over the years. Probably the best place to start is at the beginning and how you sort of got into this adventurous life. Well, right back at the start, it was um, it was pretty organic um, because I wasn't, you know, part of a club or I wasn't being you know, pushed into adventure. It was just living on the farm. It was just foothills of the highlands. My parents were running a small 60 acre organics farm. I was homeschooled and um, didn't go to, to a normal school, if you like, until I was 12. So that gave me an extraordinary amount of freedom. So every morning there was a farm to run and I was out, you know, milking goats and mucking out horses and collecting eggs from 200 free range hens. And it was just, you know, life on the farm. Um, and that gave me, I guess, a great sense of freedom and it allowed me to get out there and I guess take, build, build, um, build a knowledge of myself, but also sort of wild places, which a lot of kids don't. I realize that now living in Edinburgh and seeing what kids get to do a lot of the time in the city anyway. So yeah, I was 11 when I turned around to my parents and said, can I cycle? Well, what I said was, can I cycle Land's End John O'Groats? But I had no idea how far that was. So um, mum said I might try something smaller first. So that's where it started, the cycle across Scotland when I was 12. Good. And so what, how did your parents sort of take to an 11-year-old saying, can I cycle Land, sorry, John O'Groats to Land's End? Was this sort of compromise coast to coast? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think my dad took it that seriously. My mum, you know, it's a good thing she didn't say, don't be stupid, because if she'd crush that acorn of an idea then I probably wouldn't you know be sitting here 25 years later talking about 
expeditions to 130 countries. It was um, it was a daft idea, and um, I mean it was inspired by reading in the local newspaper about somebody who had cycled end to end, and um, I'd, I hadn't really cycled off the farm before, so I had no reference point for how far a thousand miles was. I just thought it sounded cool. So um, so going coast to coast across Scotland took me three days. It was like 135 miles to 45 miles a day or something. And um, I loved it. I didn't just love the, the journey, the bike ride. I loved the planning of it, the, 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 the map setting, the going door to door in my local town, Blegarry, and doing fundraising for some local charities. And then afterwards getting to share my story and hand over charity checks and the whole process. And actually it coincided with me going to school for the first time. And if you don't go to school till you're 12, then you've got a lot of learning to do. So I found the playground a pretty hostile environment for a good while. And I think the fact that I was already into my adventure sports just gave me a, just gave me an, A, gave me an escape, but it gave, also gave me a bit of an identity at a time where I was just not fitting in with the whole rugby and football culture. Um, I was that sort of kid that went skiing and rode ponies and cycled my bike and went for camping trips. Um, so whilst everyone else had a very sort of formal structure around these things, they went to, you know, they went to cadets or they went to um, scouts. I didn't do any of those things. I just lived on a farm and went on adventures. Good. And so, I mean, imagine sort of being homeschooled and then going in, it sort of, in terms of sort of sport, I suppose, yeah, sort of on the playground, playing football must have been quite a sort of challenge. Yeah, I, I didn't really, anything with that, I mean, I, I didn't do well at sport at school. Anything which was sort of traditional team sports was not my thing. Um, so I think a lot of my peer group from schools, I mean, I've got some great lifelong friends from school, but I think there was two professional athletes from my year at school, Alistair Dickinson and myself. Dickel became prop forward for Scotland and uh, I went and cycled around the world. So Dickel, Dickel was the classic, you know, alpha, alpha male, brilliant at sport you know it was kind of clear that he was going to 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 do it professionally and there was a few others but it but what was it going to be at a school like that it was like rugby was sort of the sport um so to to be good at horse riding is just a bit weird um whereas you know I was very passionate about that and very good at it probably my main sport until I was about 15 and then I lived very close to Glen Shee, the ski slopes so my next door neighbor was head of ski patrol so during winter when we had powder days which you got back in the 80s um I would just miss school and go go skiing and because I'd been homeschooled till the age of 12 mum had a very relaxed view on education she was like as long as you're doing fine at school you're learning just as much in a day skiing as you would be in a day in school so she she it wasn't it wasn't an issue just to go and spend a day in the mountains which I often did okay and so from there I suppose after school were you quickly to leave or did you go into university yeah so in those teenage years I had done bigger and bigger expeditions by the time I was 15 I'd um I'd done the end to end the, my first thousand miler my first solo ride albeit supported and um and then I did well at school and was sort of pushed like most kids are to do the best degree that you can for your for your grades so I ended up going to Glasgow University and studying economics and politics and I, I did you know I did and I'm still interested in those things but I did have that sort of parallel path you know adventure was always there but the fact that I was quite academic meant that 
I was in a class of 300, you know, basically studying to be an accountant. And most of my friends are accountants, so working in finance in one shape or form. So that was very much what I was pushed into, but I had a personal interest to. I had no reference point for how you could make a career in adventure sports. But I'd say it was always there. When I left school, I went to Italy. I The first thing I did when I left school was go to the team glacier in France and get my international ski, ski instructor's license. I was already instructing nationally in the UK, but it's a different license. So then I went and spent time living in Italy and, and taught over there. And I loved it. And I sort of thought, well, I could do this forever. But I also looked at those people who had that career 15, 20 years down the line, and it wasn't quite as exciting as um, when you're when you're that age. So I thought, well, it's probably not something which in terms of family life and long term, I want to I want to define myself by. So if I can keep adventure sports as sort of a passion rather than a job, I'll go off and get a, a professional qualification. So it wasn't until after university, age 22, 23, that I thought, right, why don't I just go on one big expedition to end all expeditions? Not, again, there was no reference point for how you could make this a job. So it's, it's, it'd be a lie to reverse engineer it and say, I plan to, I plan to do this. I, I just thought, what have I got to lose? Um, this is the best time in your life to put all your cards on the table and go on a big trip. And I thought, if I've only got, if I've only got one big trip in me, I better make it around the world, you know? And, um, I started researching what that could be. And the circum I was very much inspired by that at that time by like Ellen MacArthur sailing around the world. And I thought, well, I've never raced, I've never been professional, but I, was, I knew I was a good bike rider and good endurance bike rider. And I thought, well, the circumnavigation world record will be the most coveted professional record in the book. Whoever's got that will be the Ellen MacArthur of the cycling world. And I, so I couldn't believe when I sort of, did the research and found out that the record to get around planet earth on two wheels was 276 days. Um, and the last three people had come home within, you know, a, a similar time. And I mean, that's, that depends what you're trying to do. If you're trying to go on a slow touring route, that's, that's, that's a perfect time, but it's not quick, you know, it's pretty slow. Um, if you do the sums, I mean, the, the daily mileage is, is, is not very competitive. So I thought, why is this so difficult? Why is it not been done properly? So, I mean, the first time I cycled around the world, I think it was more of just spotting an opportunity. You know, I wasn't the best bike rider in Glasgow, let alone the best bike rider in the world. So I, I set out with the simple idea to cycle around the world. I suddenly realized that if I did it, I could pick up a Guinness World Record. I convinced the BBC to commission a film about it. And, um, and I came back half a year later, having, you know, smashed the previous world record by a couple of months, uh, coming home in 194 days. And what happened next was not something I planned. You know, I didn't realize what happened when you're, when you have like a, a, a four part BBC One documentary series. I went from pulling pints in a bar in Glasgow on minimum wage to, you know, being fought over for book deals and going on nationwide talk tours and um, being offered other documentary opportunities. And yeah, I mean, you can imagine, I can talk about it now because it's ancient history. It was 15, 17 years ago, but at the time it was just extraordinary. There was no way I was going to do what I thought I was going to do and get a graduate placement, you know, with, with a big accountancy firm. I was going to 
ride this roller coaster. I was going to go on more adventures. Wow. And so the sort of route going around that, because I know uh, I, I was sort of there around the sort of stands about three years ago. You, you can either take the route up towards China, Tajikistan into Xinjiang, or you can take it down into sort of Pakistan, Afghanistan through Iran. Which route did you sort of take? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's three possible routes through through Asia. You've described two of them, the southern tier and the, the middle one. And then you could go north and, and head through Russia, Mongolia, China. But the rules of the circumnavigation are you've got to go more than 18,000 miles. You've got to pass through two antipodal points, uh, two points on the opposite side of the planet, never go back on yourself. And the not going back on yourself is more difficult than you might think. So, for example, somebody tried to break the record before me, cycled all the way to the east coast of China, carried on across Australia, up New Zealand, got home, you know, picture in the paper, broken a world record, only to be told by Guinness World Record that the east coast of China is further east than um, the west coast of Australia, which is ridiculous. I mean, can you imagine how upsetting it would be to pedal around the entire planet and then realise that you've messed up in the planning stage? But if you end up on that northern tier it's quite hard to not go too far east. Now, one of the rules to myself, which is not a Guinness World Record rule, is I believe you should try and cross continents as close as you can uh, in their entirety. So people in the past have sort of stopped in the middle. They've got to wherever they think is difficult or convenient, and then they've flown to somewhere else. And you end up with this sort of mismatch route, which uh, is 18,000 miles, is going in the same direction, but it doesn't look on a primary school map of a wall it doesn't look like a circumnavigation so that's a bit of a rule to myself which i which i try and hold up so that northern tier and the middle tier is difficult and the middle one that you described which is across the caspians and through the stands is very hilly i mean it's beautiful but it's it's not fast so the first time i went around the world i went south i went through turkey iran pakistan and india i couldn't have cycled through afghanistan at the time um because it was a very heated period of the war. And um, it was even difficult the way I the way I went, which was southeast through Iran and then going through Baluchistan. So that's skirting the Helmand province. And that's a real no man's land. I mean, that's really, I was under armed security for about 500 miles through the desert with the levy, the, the Pakistani transport police. And that was, I'm not sure I'd do that now. I, I realised that was quite, quite young and um, quite ballsy to to head through there. Yeah, I think um, sort of when I sort of looked at the sort of routes that you took, because it's a really interesting route, the South, as you say, going through, and it's quite there are quite dangerous parts to it. Did you have any sort of hairy moments along the way? I was aware that I was being closely protected. Um, I actually only found real friendship from the people I was sometimes left with. I mean, there was a few points in the desert. The police were a, a, a real pain, to be honest. They they thought it was an utter nuisance to be escorting me um, through the desert. You know, they just kept signaling for me to put my bike in the back of the pickup. Why would you cycle when you, there's a perfectly good Toyota Hilux to drive you through? And, you know, I understand that. You're cycling through the desert and all the field guns point north. and. Um, you're then cycling through massive refu refugee camps with a lot of insurgency and uh, issues in the areas. You're pedaling past burnt out buses and vehicles. 
I can imagine it looked utterly ridiculous for them to be escorting, you know, a, a European cyclist on his own, saying it was important to get a world record. And there's no way to communicate that anyway. There's no language in common to explain why you've arranged this this police escort. Um, and I, I was left questioning the purpose and the priority when you're faced with such, such sort of, well, even when I got past Quetta, which is the first big city in Pakistan, and then dropped down to the Indus Valley and it, you know, saw for the first time in my life, absolute poverty, you know, just seeing people with the most incredibly upsetting um, lives in terms of how they had to live on the roadside and just the desperation and thinking, well, this this crazy mission of mine to cycle around the world for what? A, a world record? I mean, it just seemed so, it just seemed so silly. It just seemed so worthless and ridiculous in the face of people who had no choice to do anything, let alone get on their bike and pedal around the planet. So did I face danger? There was a few hearing moments, but I think what, what I really battled with was just, you're seeing the world in that way. You're so intimate on the bicycle. You see the world like a slideshow. You see things really up close. You smell things, you hear things. And just being on a journey growing up, you know, I was I was young. I was 22, 23 years old. And I was just trying to, it was the first time I'd traveled outside of Europe and North America. And there I was sleeping in ditches under the road in police stations in, um, in the most ridiculous places. And then, you know, I experienced all that, got to Lahore, got met by a BBC cameraman, checked into a five-star hotel, and suddenly I was in another world. And it was just, it was very hard to sort of join it all up, make sense of it. The most cathartic thing I did when I came back was write about it, because I was still trying to figure out, you know, the motivation to break this record alongside witnessing and experiencing humanity in such an amazing way, which you can only really do on a bicycle. Or, or by foot. Yeah, I, I agree. I think with a bike and we've sort of talked at length on this podcast about it. We've had, you know, Geordie Stewart, who also did a cycle around the world. And we spoke about by having a bike or by going on foot, you're very immersed within the area. Whereas in a car, you know, you pass it by in a blink of an eye. You don't get the smell. You don't get the feel of what that area is actually like. And on a bike, you're very vulnerable in that sense. Whether you're going through a very dodgy area, you are very vulnerable. And most of the time, you know, people are so good to you because of that. On your sort of trip, I mean, you went through Australia and New Zealand as well on that first time. Was there the sort of generosity and hospitality there which you could actually sort of step off the bike for a moment or a day yeah it's bizarre when you spend i mean you've clearly done this as well when you spend a lot of time traveling through a part of the world where you don't speak the language and your 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 entire entire purpose is to find a safe place to sleep uh you know clean water and your next meal you then get back to a more familiar part of the world uh, i'll always remember touching down in thailand and the strange thing about Thailand when you get off the beaten track is very few people speak English. Well, compare that, say, Malaysia, just down the road where everyone speaks English. Um, so I guess my point is I, I, I flew from Calcutta into Thailand 
And suddenly everything looked very familiar. You know, there was 7-Elevens on every corner and, you know, petrol stations I could walk into and buy anything I wanted and brands I would, I would know as after Pakistan and India, which was just so foreign in every way. Um, but I still couldn't communicate with people. And then I got to Malaysia and suddenly it was just, everyone talks about how exotic these countries are and they're sort of that sort of place that all gap your backpackers go to for this otherworldly experience. Whereas actually they felt brilliantly familiar after the likes of, you know, Southern Iran. Um, and then I got to Australia and even though I'd never been to Australia before, I felt like I'd arrived home. Like, you know, okay, I was in the Australian outback and it couldn't be any more different to, to, uh, to, to Scotland. But, but actually it was just, it was just ridiculous. I was like, this isn't even an adventure and I enjoyed it. But after the claustrophobia of India, I loved India, but it's one of these places that's amazing to go to and it's amazing to leave because you need, you know, when you're used to space, your own space, um, personal space, India is one of those countries that, you know, whether you're on the road cycling or stopped and in a cafe, you're not given any space. Uh, and it's wonderful for that, but it's, it's intense. It's so intense. So I got to Australia craving a bit of sort of um, time out and I got plenty of that because I was straight into the Australian outback and it's, you know, a thousand miles trying to sort of water ration to the get next um, roadhouse. So yeah, it was a, a world of extremes. And I suppose when you're going the first time round, you're wild camping and so you're always looking for, you know, your next place to sleep, your next place to drink. And in the outback, I mean, it's completely sparse. So do you, had you already planned the sort of, not the route, but like moments where you could stop and get water beforehand? Route-wise, there is only one road. Um, supply points, um, the roadhouses were were pretty obvious. In between the roadhouses, the, 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 there's these big... Um, uh, these big water tanks, which I'd sort of counted on and thought these big supply points were going to be the dot to dot that I needed. And actually, I, I realized within my first couple of days out there that most of them have run dry. So um, this sort of strategy to quite simply um, make my way between these these big reservoirs in the middle of the, the outback wasn't, wasn't reliable. So it gave me bigger gaps. And the issue there was, I planned most of my I planned my route west to east because I thought most of the continents would have a prevailing you know westerly and I would I'd have a tailwind. It didn't do what it was meant to across Australia and I had about three thousand miles of headwind. It was a three and a half thousand mile crossing, so it was okay first thing every morning. But by ten eleven o'clock the wind was up and it was just ferocious. I mean the hardest conditions I've ever faced as a cyclist are in Australia and Patagonia. It's also the southern hemisphere in terms of you know, these winds that roar around the planet with such, you know, such few barriers, you know, without, without, without the mountain ranges and the, and the landmass we've got in the Northern Hemisphere. So just these ferocious, constant winds, not like gusts and storms like we experienced in the Northern Hemisphere. So, so the outback ended up a, a real battle, a really lonely place, me just trying to get through. And a couple of times, you know, getting stuck short of, where I thought I would get to, and you, you know, I'd say running out of running out of supplies uh, uh, along the way. So it was it was harder than I thought, and I found I found Australia a bit of a psychological battle. 
you know, after after what had been such an exciting adventure going through Paris to Calcutta, I was then sort of left with my own thoughts for, you know, the next uh, the next big stint. So to get to New Zealand after that was well, it's, it really is like Scotland on the other side of the world. It was just it was just so busy. It was so quaint. The roads were so small. Um, you know, even in the middle of nowhere, you'd find little farm shops with great food. And I just found New Zealand so so simple compared to getting across Australia. You know, so welcoming. But um, but it was um, it was December, so you know it was bizarre. I was again away. <laughs> on the other side of the world, spending Christmas Day cycling in the rain up to Auckland, which was, um, which was again, you know, very much a coming of age experience. I was like, here I am. This is what I wanted to be doing. I'm 10,000 miles into this adventure and a long way from home. Yeah. And I suppose finishing that, that's when it all sort of kicked off for you, as you said, you know, with book deals and BBC, because originally... I think I I heard that, you know, it was only meant to be a sort of one episode on BBC Scotland or something, and suddenly it was made into this big document, six-part documentary. Yeah, it grew arms and legs. So the BBC Scotland commissioned it as a half-hour doc. So can you imagine spending half a year out there for... I mean, I would get to the end of some days and spend half an hour chatting to my camera. So I certainly wasn't shooting it for a half-hour doc, but... This camera, arm's length, became my only buddy on the road. It became my constant companion. It was um, it was a way to share the story. And I was interested before I left, and then in the first few days, I had a cameraman with me for the first few days, and they shot so much. They just filmed and filmed and filmed and filmed. And I did say to David, the cameraman at the time, I said, why, if this is a half-hour documentary, are we filming quite so much? And he, he laughed and he said, well, Mark, if you get to the German border and quit, we still need to make a half-hour documentary. So we have to we have to have a contingency. And I was like, oh right. So it's not that you think there's a bigger story in this. You're you're protecting yourself for the downside that I just don't do it. And the whole story becomes about the dream that didn't happen. I was like, that'll be an interesting doc. So um so when I finished, um by that point, a cameraman had joined me at four locations. So at the start, Istanbul for a day or two, Pakistan. Um, did I have some, did I have one in Australia? And then I, I, a guy joined me in Texas for a few days. So it was mainly self-shot with a few days of sort of objective filming, of getting me in the landscape and whatnot. And when I came back, they, they very quickly made it into a, a four-part series. And um, it got aired on BBC Scotland, got a fantastic response, and then got picked up by network and shown on, on, on BBC One. And it was very interesting, the response. I mean, this is, I say, a, a, good, a good while ago. My record was very quickly broken. And a number of people over the, the, the sort of 10, 15 years afterwards broke my record. And um, I spoke to a number of them. You know, I always got in touch and congratulated and, you know, I knew who these people were. And I know a few of them were saddened that the their around the world efforts and breaking the record and going faster um, didn't give them the same 
opportunities. It didn't give them the same career it had given me, clearly. And that's not to pretend that it's always been a plain sailing. I've, <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes and there's been some good years and bad years. But I did, I did have this broadcasting career from day one. It was always part of it. And I think people, some of the some of the riders were always surprised that by by doing what they set out to do and breaking the record, it didn't in and of itself give them that opportunity. But I think the reality is the filmmaking and the, the sharing of that story was there from day one. It wasn't, I think when I finished the round the world cycle, I would have got like everyone else, two or three days coverage in the papers at most. And then it would be a forgotten story to create that legacy and to create further opportunities and to get to write a book and, you know, to use it as a, as a, as a launch pad for other things. Um, the, the, the sharing of that story and the capturing of it is as important as the sport. And I think quite a lot of bike riders and adventurers don't, don't realize maybe they do now with social media, but they didn't realize that that's actually a completely different skill set than breaking the record. Breaking a record will give you, you know, a day in the papers and then your, you know, tomorrow's chip paper. Whereas to give real legacy and opportunities to do other stuff, you got to you got to plan that stuff from the start. And I had no idea when I set out first time around really what I was doing. I didn't know that it was going to open more doors, but I knew I couldn't afford the trip. So I knew in a very sort of economist mindset that I needed to somehow give return on investment to my sponsors. So I spent half a year telling the would-be sponsors that I was going to make telly. And I spent the same time trying to talk to BBC and saying, well, the whole thing's paid for. We just need to, you know, you just need to give me the cameras. So there was no contract with the BBC. They didn't pay me a penny. I, I just gave it to them in the hope that I would get some coverage from my sponsors. And, you know, for half a year, I was, you know, trying not to tell any fibs, but I was trying to give everyone the confidence that this was happening. And, um, you know, the reality is I didn't have a documentary yet and I certainly didn't have the money, but you've got to, you've got to, you know, you've got to, you've got to paint the picture. You've got to, you've got to share the dream. You've got to tell people that this is happening. And um, it's amazing how that worked out, but I didn't see it till, till afterwards. Yeah. You can always, um, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them when you look back and by you being able to tell the story throughout your time, because it's one thing just to turn up break the record and be like, da-da, done. But with you, you had the camera, you told the story of your journey. And that's probably far more interesting and inspiring to others and to the BBC. I mean, it looks pretty old-fashioned now. You can go on YouTube and watch The Man That Cycled the World. Um, but I loved it. You know, I'd say it was, um, it was before social media. Facebook had been invented, but it really wasn't a thing. Uh, Twitter, when I went on my next expedition down the length of the Americas, which was a nine-month trip a few years later, you know, I was asked by the BBC to take this new thing called Twitter that I'd never heard of. And um, and this was... So, I mean, the first documentary I shot... I'm not that old, I'm 38, but the first documentary I shot, I filmed on mini-DV. That's cassette. That's reel-to-reel cassette. So we're, we're talking at that sort of at the end of analog, start digital, before social media. Um, so to, to live a journey, not because I'm trying to be an Instagram influencer, but because I'm just going on a journey with a camera at arm's length, was had a great simplicity about it. I suppose with your um, trip around the world, as you said, people started breaking it. 
And, you know, the time was getting cut shorter and shorter and shorter from 194 days to, I think, 127 by the time you decided to go again. But I suppose with this, people, you went with panniers, heavy load, self-sufficient. And then the next time you're like, right, if we proper lightweight bike support team, you could probably get this down. Yeah. I mean, I was a very different athlete by that point. Um, I'd watched with on with interest as the record had been broken many times over the years. And once it got down into the 120s, um, I mean, if you'd asked me that when I finished first time around, I would have sworn that I'm never going to cycle around the world again. Why would I do the same thing twice? And also, when I first cycled around the world, I felt like I'd left it all out there. You know, at that point in my career, that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. I had gone as fast as I could. And so, you know, job done. So, I then went and did lots and lots of other expeditions, not just cycling, but I built an interest in the performance side as well as the adventure. So I was no longer that sort of wild man just out there, you know, where's my next meal? Where am I going to sleep tonight? Um, the performance side really mattered. And there was such an evolution in that decade away from trekking to bike packing and, you know, the ultralight. So, you know, in 2015, when I smashed the, Africa world record, the Cairo to Cape Town. I took that record from 59 days down to 41. And I was riding about 160 miles a day. And um, that's a 10,000 kilometer race. And, you know, Africa is still my favorite continent for, for, for an expedition like that. Um, that's really what gave me the idea. I thought, Right, I've really pushed it here. I, I really have taken this to the next level, but it's still as much about what happens off the bike as on the bike. So what I really wanted, and by that point I was mid-30s, I thought I really want one chance in my life to put all my cards on the table and go, what is my ultimate? You know, it's no longer about how quickly can I find my next meal or you know, where am I going to pitch my tent? It is purely about how fast can I go? And so that's why I came full circle back to the world. I thought, well, I've only got one chance to figure out that sort of expression of, as an athlete, what's, what's my Everest? What is my Everest? I thought, well, it's, it's, got to be, it's got to be the world. And I started putting a team together on that 18,000-mile race. And we got down to about 90 days in terms of the planning, like what, what should be possible. Uh, and then I put it back to my team as, more as a hypothesis than anything else. I said, well... If 90 days is possible, could you do 80? You know, I mean, breaking the record is one thing, but 80 days is such a one-time prize. And that's where we got fixated on that idea. And to my knowledge, there's only one other person who had ever speculated that you could cycle around the planet in less than 80 days. And that was the great late Mike Hall, who um, sadly passed away just before I set out around the world in 2017. Um, an amazing adventure cyclist. So I, whilst I have cycled around the world twice and it's exactly the same record in terms of the, the rules, it couldn't be any more different in terms of the experience. Um, you know, second time around was, was purely about performance. It wasn't about the people that I did not meet. Yeah, I... It was just very interesting to see the dynamics between the two in terms of the 80 days to the 197. One was a real adventure and the other one was pure physical endurance. 
pushing yourself every day, probably what getting up at silly o'clock in the morning till 12 o'clock at night. Yeah, I was riding for 16 hours a day. You know, I was sleeping for five hours a night. So I was up at half three on the bike at four, you know, riding, riding 16 hours. So I was averaging 240 miles a day. So if you compare it to the first time around, first time around, I rode 100 miles a day. And um, I would ride for roughly eight hours a day. Second time around, I would ride for 16 hours a day. So twice the time on the bike. And every one of those hours, I was riding significantly faster. So, um, you know, performance wise, first time around was a much better adventure. But but second time around makes the first look like kindergarten. I mean, lots of people could ride 100 miles a day. Not many people could ride 240 miles a day back to back to back for two and a half months. No, it's, it's an extraordinary uh, sort of achievement and just phenomenal. It's just an amazing story, really, of just physical endurance and just pushing yourself. We, we sort of speak, I think it was Jamie Ramsey on episode five, was talking about the idea of this balloon where you sort of blow this balloon in terms of pushing yourself and you blow it a little more and then you think, Whoa, that was as fast as I could go. And then it just grows and grows and grows to the point where you're pushing yourself way beyond what you ever thought you could push yourself five years before and you just keep sort of pushing yourself further and further yeah for sure and that's you know goes back to the point you made a few minutes ago you can only see these things looking back um there's no way as a graduate i could look forwards and imagine that not just that there would be the opportunity to do these things but i would have the physical ability or psychological, logistical, you name it, all the rest of it, you know, you can only see the next horizon once you've made it to the first and and, and onwards and onwards. And um, I think it's a great analogy in anything endurance. You just ride the road in front of you. You've got no idea quite how long that road is or where it's going to take you. And if you were to think about the entire scale of what you're trying to do, whether it's a, a physical journey in front of you or, or life full stop, you know, you just wouldn't get out of bed. Because it's it's hard, you know. It's you've got to suffer well, and there's going to be lots of knocks. But you can normally ride the road in front of you, and you know the the, the learning from that. And and the interesting thing about endurance is so little of it is just the physical realm. I mean, I'm six foot three and ninety kilos, so I'm clearly not the world's best bike rider. Um, and yet the confidence and the the learning over the years and the, the teams I worked with to to build this, I've had the opportunity to take on some of the world's most iconic endurance uh, records. And we've never pipped a record. You know, we've never broken anyone else's record. We've always created these leaps in performance uh, because we've had that, that ability to learn from what people have done before, you know, really respect the history of that. And there's such an amazing supportive network of adventurers out there who are willing to, to share information and ideas um, but then not make the same mistake that so many people make, which is just base your targets on what other people have done. You know, I've never taken somebody's record and said, right, let's beat that. I've always gone, okay, how have you done that? You know, really broken it apart and understood and learned it and then said, right, what should be possible? How do you take that learning and bottom-up approach? How little can I sleep? How far can I go? 
what inputs do I need for the ride? What are the, the geeky details? Most people get lost just in the sport of it. So they train hard and they think it's about a physical task. I get absolutely lost in, you know, all the, all the things which you should know and mitigate. Um, everyone worries cycling around the world about getting stopped by Russian police or tricky border crossings. But, you know, I'll hire the honorary consul from Mongolia onto my team. I'll get sign off at the, you know, the, 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 the head of Russian police or I'll get men's aviation, the ground handlers at the airport onto my team. You know, I'll, 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 go, I'll go to every length to make sure that my job on the bike is not is not uh, undermined by something that we should have thought about but didn't. So I think that's if there's an X factor, it's that level of detail that we go to to know everything that we should know and not just thinking it's a, a, about your physical fitness. It's just cutting cutting the time just by you know seconds here and there that make up such a huge difference. It's like when people go on expeditions and then they cut the sort of string off a zip because that's two grams or something and then they cut it around you know the packaging tags because that's two grams there and two grams here and then it all adds up in terms of weight is well, the that biggest thing for the biggest thing for me is time but it's similar to what you're talking about but what i stressed to my team on the on the around the world in 80 days was if we if we faffed for five minutes every time i got off the bike that would add a day to the world record so rather than talking about you know aerodynamics or like all the things that people get lost on which are important just make sure i'm on the bike at four and not five past four you know just control the things you can control and that time management and discipline you know not worrying about how far you went every day just doing the time 16 hours a day you know that's 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 a discipline which stops you it was funny i banned my team from asking me how i felt because when you're under a lot of pressure it's an obvious question for people to ask when they don't know what to say. How are you feeling? How are you? Um, a, is a hard one to answer when you feel like crap. But secondly, it doesn't matter how I feel because I could feel on top of the world or I could feel completely unmotivated. It doesn't affect what we are doing today. And so the unless it's about safety, and that's a conversation from my performance team, unless it's about is it safe to carry on or not, the how do you feel brings in an unwelcome unnecessary aspect to today's performance and i said to them very clearly you know you're not allowed to ask that question because it doesn't matter it doesn't influence our behavior yeah yeah it's it's a really interesting one just five minutes adds to an entire day over the course yeah yeah it's just those fine margins well mark thank you so much um there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week, with the first being, uh, on your trips and expeditions, what's the one gadget that you always bring with you? Uh, it's not massively exciting. It would be a, it would be a GPS tracker. You know, uh, I think people, whether they're going on local micro-adventures or global adventures, just people knowing where you are and being able to pull the pin and call it Mayday when things go wrong. Uh, people always assume that you'll be okay with your mobile phones, but a proper GPS tracker, a personal locator, so that I know wherever I am uh, that I can keep in touch with my loved ones. So pretty boring, but uh, something that people don't think enough about when they go on trips. And I, I, I don't mean cycling around the world. I mean, even if I head out into the Pentlands, I've got a tracker on me. Oh, very nice. 
What about your favorite adventure or travel book? Well, let me let me give a plug for uh, Rob Pope's new book. Rob okay. Pope, who's the uh, Mr. Forrest Gump, the guy that ran, like lived the true Forrest Gump, and um, the book's called Becoming Forrest. And um, I've been in a very small way helping him get this um, get this out there, and it's going to be published in the summer or early autumn. But Rob Pope's an absolute legend. He's um, he's a vet by trade, and um, he hosts a podcast for Red Bull on adventure stuff. But yeah, I'm, I'm so delighted he's, he's finally got his story in a book. He's such a, he's a Liverpudlian and he's got a brilliant sense of humour. So when you can, Becoming Forest, that'll be a superb read. Rob Pope, okay. Why are adventures important to you? Adventures for me are about creating memories. They're about getting out there, doing difficult things and... Um, building a building a better sense of self and now that I've got kids I've got two daughters it's about showing them you know giving them a connection to the world getting out there and doing difficult things creating memories and you build a better sense of self through through the journeys you go on people places landscapes so yeah very nice what about your favorite quote that all motivational quote. It's not really a motivational quote. My my mum was a McLeod, so half my family's McLeods, and their clan motto for the McLeods is hold fast. And um, I've always used that in difficult situations. Just having part of your family's motto is hold fast is quite useful when the shit's hitting the fan. Yeah, that is a good one. Um, people listening are always keen to travel and go on these sort of grand adventures. What's the one thing you would recommend for people wanting to get started? Well, it's the classic doorstep mile, isn't it? The doorstep mile, that sort of Scandinavian, Scandinavian phrase, which um, is just meaning the hardest part is committing to the journey. Now, whether that's going out on a training ride because it's dark or it's raining outside or or saying out loud to your partner or friends that you're going to do something. It's the, it's the concept of turning an idea into reality. So I meet people all the time, and I'm sure you do, who have grand ideas. We all have dreams. But make being somebody who's in a habit of turning dreams into realities is just committing to the doorstep mile, saying it out loud, being brave, changing it from something you'd like to do to something you are doing. And that shift of mindset is a habit. Um, we all get comfortable. So, yeah, the, the 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 committing to the the committing to the journey, saying out loud, so you build some accountability around it, is um, is 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 always the key. After that, there's lots of challenges, but they're very practical, get it sorted challenges. Whereas what stops people going on journeys is is the void that exists between dreaming and doing. Yeah, that's very true. I don't tend to tell people until it's like official and then I tell them and then it's like there's no going back anyway from there. Yeah, well, we all work in different ways. Yeah. Um, finally, what are you doing now and how can people follow you in the future? I mean, keeping up is pretty straightforward. I'm not the most prolific um, social media user, but um, yeah, I mean, Mark, Mark Beaumont Online and all my social channels are, are, are pretty, um, pretty, pretty good at sharing the story. I've got five books, lots of documentaries online. Quite a lot of my films are on Global Cycling Network these days. So GCN, the stuff on on the YouTube channel. And um, 
And the big docs are on the subscription platform, which is GCN Plus. Um, this year, got some big expeditions. Um, they are slightly curtailed by me smashing my hand last month. So I've just had 21 stitches taken out my finger. But um, yeah, we should be back in action in June for some films which will hopefully be worth following over the summer. And I'll, I'll share more about them when I can. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing your stories. And thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely fascinating, the sort of, as I say, cycling around the world, the sort of stories from that and the sort of mindset you sort of had to go through. My pleasure. Keep up, keep up the great work with the, with the podcast. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to sign up for our adventure newsletter, which is in the description below. I hope you enjoyed the show and if you did, tag me on Instagram at John Horsfall. I'm always keen to connect with everyone. I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures.